Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, psychotherapist Moira Geary on what emotional freedom is and the emotions that hold us back. And I'll be hearing from a parent campaigning for an overturn of cuts to special education hours. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, suffice to say, I've been good. The usual juggle. There's a few stressful things going on for my husband. So I'm trying to maintain support in that area. Work, work out, have fun. There's been lots of nights out this week, it has to be said. I even squeezed in a night out with the girls um, and an overnight stay at Glass and Lake House, which was fun. Then back to family, personal development. You know the drill, but yes, I am good. But I want to make this segment of the show this week about you, lovely lot, for a change, because I've had some correspondence to the show. I always welcome your emails to aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. And these I felt needed to feature on the show. So lots of you got in touch about endometriosis and your experience. Some of you had questions. A lot of you contacted me through Instagram and there were a lot of emails there as well. So we will definitely feature it again on the show. But I got contacted by Darren Barrett. Um, She runs Kiasnu Endometriosis Awareness and you will find her on Instagram, Kiasnu. It's spelled C-N-E-A-S-U, Father. And that's the word for healing in Irish. And she has some events coming up because March is Endometriosis Awareness Month. So she has a screening of Below the Belt on International Women's Day in Tralee in County Kerry with an incredible guest panel for a Q&A after it, including fertility coach Helena Tuberty, Dr. Connor Curley, um, who is a nutritionist and consultant radiologist, Dr. Martin Schrantz. And Diren herself will also be there. Um, and then she also has a retreat, which that film will be screened at. There is forest bathing. There's a workshop with Peggy Crowley. Um, there's dinner. There's all types of beautiful things happening at that event. So if you're interested in any of those, then you need to go to Eventbrite and put in Kiasnu and you will find information on all of those. And Donal was in touch about our piece on ultra-processed foods. He says, I've just finished renowned scientist Professor Tim Spector's book, Food for Life. And he, like all modern research, says there's nothing wrong with saturated fat. It's in so many whole foods like nuts, etc. It's natural, unlike trans and hydrogenated fats. And when it gets taken out of food like yogurt, etc., they often replace it with sugar. It would be good to put an end to misguided low-fat products, processed and ultra-processed foods too, as much as possible. And perhaps you could cover it on the show again. Well, Donal, we've just made you an expert in that area. And I would second the recommendation of that book by Tim Spector, Food for Life. I think if we try and stick as best we can, there's always going to be a place for convenience food um, and fast food and, and eating out and not knowing exactly what's in the ingredients. But if... In the main, you try and cook things yourself and know what it is that you're eating and foods as close to the state that nature intended them to, then that is the best for your health and well-being going forward. And more than one of you commented on the conflict in relations piece that we did with Fiona Brennan a couple of weeks back and mentioned a husband and wife psychologist team, the Gottmans. Now, Fiona did mention them too, and I am going to try and have them on. I think I need to speak to a husband and wife team who have worked for decades 
on themselves and in relationships and hear if they have any gems to share. You can always email the show Alive and Kicking at Newstalk.com. Now, this week was Shingles Awareness Week and for the week that's in it, GSK have released some new research around shingles awareness in Ireland. Ivan Daly is Country Medical Director at GSK Ireland and she joins me now to tell us more. You're very welcome, Ivan. Good morning, Clara. Thank you for having me along this morning. I think this is something we hear a lot about. I mean, it's common enough shingles, but people might not know exactly what it is. That's right. There's a one in three lifetime risk of developing shingles. So it is a fairly common condition. Um, that said, we may not have the most uh, you know, up-to-date awareness of shingles and um, you know, its presentation and its effects. So Shingles Awareness Week is a really important week to help spread the word and raise awareness of this condition, which does affect many of us in our lifetime. So two-thirds of cases will occur in those aged over 50, and therefore predominantly it's those in the 50 years of age group and upwards that need to be most aware of the condition. It can affect others too at any stage in life, mainly those with immunocompromise or other medical conditions or taking medications that affect the immune system. But in the main, it's those aged over 50. So this is an important week, Claire, and it's great that you're, you've devoted a slot to it. So what I would have heard is that it's the adult form of chickenpox. Is there any truth in that? Absolutely. Yeah, that's correct, Claire. So the chickenpox virus, which is a varicella zoster virus, affects, infects most of us in childhood. Um, about 98% of people in Ireland will have experienced chickenpox during childhood, usually in the early years, but most definitely by our teenage years, we will have immunity to chickenpox. And that virus lies dormant or latent in the body for many, many years post-infection with chickenpox. It lies dormant in the nerve cells, which lie just directly lateral to the nerve cells in the spine and also um, some of the nerve cells in the brain. And it does no harm, lies dormant for many, many years. But later in life, it can reactivate. And usually, you know, the the data or the research would suggest that this reactivation is caused by an age-related decline in immunity. And therefore, the virus has an opportunity to resurge. And so it's a second presentation of the same virus, but it's a very different condition. And that's shingles. So you can only get shingles if you had chickenpox. That's correct. You don't just get it as a, as a first time. So if you've been vaccinated against chickenpox as a child or earlier in life, is that a protection against shingles? So you're absolutely right. You can't just contract shingles in that it's not an infectious disease. It's not contagious. So if a person has shingles, they're not going to pass shingles on to somebody else. Um, if you've been vaccinated against chickenpox, there is still a chance that you will go on to develop shingles, although in much older years, although... The data does suggest that the likelihood of developing shingles is lower in people vaccinated against chickenpox versus those who've had chickenpox disease. That said, vaccination for chickenpox, while has been around in some countries for many years, realistically, it's so many years later when a person develops shingles after either vaccination or having had chickenpox disease that you probably don't have the clearest picture on that at the moment. So whether or not you've had the disease or whether you've been vaccinated against the disease that is chickenpox, you still have a risk of developing shingles. And for those of us who have experienced uh, chickenpox, it's a one in three lifetime risk and mostly in the over 50s. But as we age beyond that into our 60s, 70s and 80s and beyond, the risk continues to grow or increase. And it sounds very scary to think of viruses lying dormant within our system, but this is quite normal. I mean, we're, we're kind of taking in and expelling things all the time in, in, as a human. 
Um, and even the cold sore virus, that's the same, isn't it? It's something that can stay dormant and, and, and re-arrive. So this this is very normal part of human health and the immune system. That's right. We are a very complicated milieu of all sorts of um, microorganisms, many of which are very uh, compatible with healthy living and some of which obviously can cause disease and, and may be quite harmless and then flare to cause a disease. And then um, clearly once if we take an example of shingles as a disease, once that condition passes, then the virus remains dormant and usually doesn't uh, cause any further problems. So what are the symptoms of shingles? So what a person most likely will first feel would be a tingling, a burning or itching sensation, most likely around their trunk or it can be across a person's face. Most likely as well, a person's just going to feel very unwell, that viral feeling, that feeling of a viral illness. They may feel fatigued and malaised and just feeling generally off. And then this tingling, itching, burning sensation, most of the time followed by a rash. And that rash is quite characteristic in that it is usually vesicular, which means it's got blisters. And those blisters very often then go on to weep. And, and ooze. So it's very, very unpleasant, unfortunately. And so it's really important if a person experiences um, the onset of shingles and have that awareness, and that's the real importance of this week, so that we can increase the awareness of those early signs and symptoms, that they see their GP very, very promptly. If a person who's in the early stages of shingles visits their GP, the GP may have options from the point of view of limiting the extent, the impact or the duration of the condition. At that point, you know, the the person will have to live through their shingles, but there may be some supportive therapies or some medication that may help them um, as they get through that episode of shingles. Yeah, because I think people are starting to get their head around the fact that a virus can't be treated with antibiotics. There isn't something you can necessarily take, but as you say, you should seek medical attention and you may be able to ease those symptoms. Are there any side effects or or complications perhaps with shingles? There are. There can be for some people. Now, for many people, it may be, you know, it's self-limiting. It's maybe quite mild. They can tolerate and, and, and live with it for an uncomfortable period of time, it has to be said. Um, for others, then the pain may be more severe. And then a minority of patients will describe very, very severe, intense, a burning, a stabbing and itching um, and, um, a, and just very massive discomfort. And that can last anything from two to five weeks. Um, the most common site for the rash and this nerve pain would be across the trunk or the abdomen. Um, usually to one side of the body, or it can be down the face if the nerve that controls the movement and sensation in the face, eye and jaw is impacted. Um, So it's quite characteristic in usually where it presents. That said, it can occur anywhere on the body, so I don't want to give a false impression that those are the only two sites, Um, but that would be the most common um, location of, of, of onset. What about blindness then? Um, That is rare, but it can be a risk factor with shingles. Yeah, a person can be left with vision impairment now, as you say, Claire, in very rare cases. So we wouldn't want to cause overdue alarm. Um, But again, that just underlines the importance of seeking early medical attention if you suspect that you have developed shingles, because certainly early intervention is your best chance from the point of view of ameliorating the extent of the condition and potentially offsetting some other uh, long term impacts. The patients who may go on to have um, issues with vision would be patients who've had the involvement of that nerve that runs from the brain down across the face, eye and into the jaw. And if a person 
you know, has a, a severe manifestation in across that nerve, then they're referred straight away in for a specialist um, treatment. Yeah, and that's why if you feel those tingles and it feels a bit different to any sort of flu or virus you had before, definitely go and check it out. So what's your advice for people then? You did say it's probably a very normal part of your immune system slowing down a little bit as you age, but do lifestyle factors play a different, make a difference? I don't like there to be any blame or guilt around getting an illness. It's a very normal part of being a human, as we've already said. But are there times where we're pushing ourselves too hard, not taking enough rest, you know, not making sure that we're choosing nutritious foods? Are they the best ways to ensure that your immune system is working at its best, regardless of your age? Yeah, that's a really good question, Claire, because we all like to have autonomy or you know, have a a hand in our health. And healthy ageing is a really important topic in itself. And there are many, many things that we can do, as you say, around lifestyle uh, to support healthy ageing. With regard to shingles, I'm afraid we're probably more limited in our options from the point of view of healthy ageing. That said, there are some indicators in the research that like chronic or severe or long-term stress would have an impact on the immune system. And that in itself may be linked to a resurgence of this varicella zoster virus, which is that shingles manifestation. That said, the research is not so strong in this space in terms of a direct link. So I think more of a picture of overall healthy ageing, those lifestyle factors that you're speaking about are very important, but most likely not going to have a tremendously great impact on your risk of developing shingles. Yeah, sometimes these things just happen. Is there anywhere people can find out more information? Absolutely. Uh, Claire. we have a website available uh, called www.understandingshingles.ie and we'd encourage all listeners to go and seek out further information from understandingshingles.ie or many of the other reputable websites, so from state health agencies and other really good um, reputable sources. Yeah, rather than just Dr. Google. Well, Ivan Daly, Country Medical Director at GSK Ireland, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Claire. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, a group of parents have come together to campaign against a new model for special education hours in schools by the Department of Education. Susan Clark is one of the parents and she joins me on the line now. Susan, you're very welcome. Thank you, Claire. Thanks for having me on today. So tell us a little bit about this new proposal by the Department of Education. Yeah, just to give you a little bit of background, um, I I am the mom of a little neurodivergent boy called Bobby. Um, Bobby attends an autism class in a really gorgeous neuroaffirmative school in Cherrywood in Dublin. When we found out about Bobby's diagnosis of autism and ADHD, we saw that his journey in education might, you know, have some twists and turns in it. We thought that he may start in an autism class and then he would gradually you know, go into mainstream as time went on. Um, from my perspective as a parent, what we are seeing now with this new circular is that ultimately he's probably not going to integrate into mainstream because the hours are going to be reduced for children with complex needs. So the minister has come out and said that 33% of schools are going to be affected by this. Ultimately, what the message is delivering to us as parents is is really saying that, you know, we're all reaching for the stars for our kids. We want them to succeed in life. But how is that going to happen if we can't integrate them into a mainstream setting? The reality of setting up the autism class and the thought process behind it was to give these kids an opportunity, you know, to relax into the school setting, to 
you know, grow into mainstream as they, they were comfortable to do so. But for us now going forward, I don't see how that's going to happen. And it's very concerning for children who are starting school in September in particular, because they are not featured in the SET hours going forward. And that ultimately, Claire, is going to have a knock-on effect on mainstream classroom settings because their access to the curriculum is going to be cut ultimately. And it's massively concerning for so many parents across the country. So what will be the reality of the situation? Does that mean that those with complex needs will be separated from mainstream schooling and have their educational needs met in that way, which is not inclusion at its best and not a model I think any of us want to be moving towards? Or are you saying they won't be receiving education at all? Ultimately, from September, as we understand it, new children who start in the in the school setting, they are not featured. That's our understanding in terms of the hours allocated are not featured. So then the school is going to potentially be in a situation where it's going to have a knock-on effect because they're going to have a certain amount of hours. But as the school population grows, the supports aren't there. So ultimately, you know, what, what will happen, Claire? I don't know. Will children be pit against each other? You know, the, the school is going to be scrambling to how best use their resources. So it's putting more pressure on that environment. The child will have more difficult, more challenging time trying to access their curriculum because the hours are going to be, you know, less in the school. We understand that, you know, your SET uh, hours in, in your autism class won't be touched. But then, you know, you've met one autistic child, you've met one autistic child, not one model fits all of them. You know, and it's, it's like the analogy of a child, you know, who doesn't speak verbal words, has nothing to say. You know, it's as bizarre as saying, you know, a child who attends mainstream class with complex needs doesn't either need supported. And, and that's what we're coming out here to try and get overturned. You know, this is really, really concerning. It's going to have a knock-on effect on junior infants starting September, you know, where there's the mainstream junior infants classrooms because there'll be children in the classroom who may be interrupting because their needs aren't being met, you know, who have reduced hours, who feel frustrated. And then you're putting that pressure back on the teacher, you know, and, and we need to look after our teachers. We need, they're doing great work, but, you know, it's, it's a really challenging environment for them. And I just don't see how it's going to work. Yeah, it's not really fair on anybody, the current setup. And, you know, I know we're moving into different times where we thankfully are getting more awareness, more diagnosis and people's needs are being met in a way they weren't in previous generations. But it does feel like the classroom and the school setup isn't catching up. This almost feels like a couple of steps back. And I read an excellent piece by Coleman Nocter recently, and he was talking more about ADHD, but he said we need to stop asking why a child with ADHD won't sit down and concentrate and begin to look at the classroom and adapting that to help children with different needs. And and this is the same for any neurodiverse conditions, because to alter the classroom to serve those with more complex needs benefits everybody. The current model we have now is only benefiting one type of child and one type of learning. So it's disappointing to feel that even though an evolution of our education system is going to take time, this sort of sends out a bit of a message. I'm sure you, you felt that way. 
very much so. I mean, you know, it, we're very neuroformative. We're reaching for the stars for our kids. Our kids are, are incredibly intelligent. You know, they feel it when their needs aren't being met. And, you know, it does very much feel like two steps forward with the opening of all these autism classes, which again is 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 really massively beneficial and we're grateful for that. But then again, three steps back with this. Um, and again, you know, it is, it, it's, neuro, it's neurotypical. It's the parents of neurotypical kids in Ireland who will be impacted. And we don't want to go back to a situation where four and five-year-old children are, are telling their parents that there's a bold child in class, you know, and not understanding what their needs are and maybe they're not being met. So that's the concern for us. I know you're working a lot with the incredible neurodiversity Ireland um, and, and they're doing great work in this area. Um, what have you heard from, from other parents? From other parents, I know a parent in particular whose children are starting junior infants in September. Um, she has twins and I, you know, she's incredibly concerned. She, she feels that one of her little girls, she won't, it'll be school avoidance. She won't be able for the classroom setting in the way in which she learns. It's just not a it's it's just not going to be appropriate for her. You know, I know another parent whose child is in senior infants in a mainstream class getting her SET hours. Her concern is that ultimately, you know, those hours are going to be, are going to have to be reduced in order for other children's needs to be met coming into the school because you can't ignore those children regardless of the fact that you're not getting the SET hours. They need the supports. You know, I've spoken to a principal about this as well. It's just the pressure point you know, trying to get teachers, trying to resource the schools, um, it just has a really massive impact and knock-on effect. And I suppose from our perspective, Claire, you know, we're calling on the minister to have a conversation with us as parents, you know, to look at this and, and you know, to really put complex needs back into the policy for the circular. It's so important to so many. And I know, as I am, have raised this, Inclusion Ireland have raised it, Down Syndrome Ireland, and like I commend them for the work they're doing. But we really need to have another conversation about this. Because we were already on an unlevel playing field. I hear all types of things anecdotally among among friends. I'm hearing a lot now from the, the secondary school education system that I, I'm not a part of yet, but, mm-hmm. you know, parents arriving to parent-teacher meetings and the teacher questioning, uh, struggling with spelling. And, you know, the parents said, but she's got dyslexia. And the teacher's kind of looking through the notes and saying, oh, right, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, I feel like there isn't enough training given to teachers in this area. Um, And, you know, in my own house, we have one neurotypical, one neurodiverse. And I want inclusion. I want, you know, both of my children to be exposed to all different types of people who learn in very different ways because that's the reality of the world that we're living now and the workplace that we're living in now, the societies that we're living in now. So it really should be starting in the classroom. Yeah, we, we fully agree with that. And I think we want our children to be included in society. We want um, a model where mainstream kids work very well together, you know, with neurodivergent kids and that they have an understanding that this child might go for an hour with her SET teacher and they come back to the classroom and they're in better form and, you know, they're regulated and they, they've had that one on one time to learn and they feel like they've achieved something rather than being left in, in the classroom setting frustrated and maybe getting a bit cross or angry because naturally enough, you know, they're not getting their needs met. So we want them to thrive in society alongside their, you know, their neurotypical peers. And I don't know how that can happen 
with this new circular. I did read the statement from the Department of Education and Norma Foley in the piece in the Irish Independent this week. And it seemed to be quite final. It was sort of like, you know, well, schools were informed of this many months ago. You know, it was words to that effect. I mean, it didn't really incite much inspiration that, you know, they're doing their best to to make a difference here. How did you feel when you read the statement? I, I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked. I felt, you know, are we moving backwards and not forwards? You know, I had some grave concerns for my own child, for other children who I know who are in in different settings. You know, I alluded to it earlier. You've met one autistic child. You've met one autistic child. Every child's needs are different. I kind of couldn't believe what I was reading when I actually read it. That's how I genuinely felt. And I think we all want to live in a society where we support those around us and, and Bobby and children like him, in fact, all children deserve the best shot at life. Well, we wish him all the best. We may revisit it if anything changes. Susan Clark, one of the parents campaigning against the new model for special education hours. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you, Claire. Alive and kicking. On News Talk. Now, psychotherapist Moira Geary became so fascinated by the common emotions which seemed to hold her clients back, she dedicated her life and practice to helping people achieve freedom in life. And she joins me in studio now. Moira, you're very welcome. Thank you very much, Claire. It's lovely to be here. So tell us about your journey to becoming a psychotherapist first. Okay, so the psychotherapy bit is actually something that only happened in recent years. So if I go back to where all of my interest, I suppose, came from with with all of this this area. Um, when I was very young, so the, I, I can even remember at the age of 13 being fascinated by why people do what they do, even in family dynamics and, you know, people's reaction responses to things. And that was all very safe and fine at home. Then at the age of 15, the first book I ever bought, I don't know where I got the money for it, mind you, was a book called Man Watching by Desmond Morris. Now, I'm sure it's way out of print now, but it was all about body language. And I can remember sitting in bed and being fascinated that if people do this and people do that, that means something. Now, I know now that probably maybe... Um, um, you know, there's a lot more research on that, so it probably wasn't all true, but it just fascinated me. And what I sort on, of age were you then? I was 15. Okay, at that stage, yeah. Now I never, I've never read a novel in my life, but I've read thousands of books, and they're all about, you know, information and learning. So I've got this really strong appetite to understand what makes us, why we do what we do. That's that's really it. But I suppose I went on to, to nursing actually was my first thing and midwifery. So I was exposed at a very young age and back in those days we were up on the wards at 18 and exposed to the most traumatic and the most elated um, experiences that people were going through. And to observe that from the perspective of the same situation, different families, different people and the way they reacted and responded to it and the people that found it really, really difficult and the people that found things quite easier. And I just thought, what is going on or why is all this happened? So over the years, um, I actually started more with a slant on more a holistic approach. So moved to London, uh, got married and moved to London. And in London, my mind was opened. Now, this is like 30 years, it's actually more than 30 years ago now. That it's nearly, nearly 35 years ago. So there was a lot going on in London that wasn't going on in Ireland. And um, I started to learn a lot about um, holistic approaches to health. And then I became a director of nursing in a very, very unusual clinic out in Berkshire where we integrated holistic and orthodox medicine together. And I thought um, that, you know, there wasn't going to be that much of an impact of the holistic stuff was kind of nice for people. But it was mind blowing the recovery that people made when we added that holistic approach. So it was counselling, massage, 
um, Reiki, all these energy um, healings, etc., which I knew nothing about. And then I, that piqued my interest. So I got very involved in understanding all of that. But in the search while I was in the UK, I came across things like neurolinguistics, cognitive reimprinting, neurological repatterning. So all really around what people would call personal development nowadays. And I started to implement a lot of it. So that really, really excited me. And I'm always so interested in that area of yeah. this holistic way of looking at health. And, you know, only on last week's show, I was talking about how we often pit health and wellness against each other. Yes. As you said, that wellness is something nice to do if you have time. Yeah. But they're they're interwoven. I mean, we're emotional yeah. beings. You can't just patch us up and send us out. Absolutely. You you need something more. Absolutely. And 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 that to me is the key. And I'll I'll kind of come to that around the emotion because that's something that's not really talked that much about. But the problem is that if we don't talk about it and people don't understand it, they're never really going to be able to work on their freedom because it's all comes down to the actual emotion because the emotion will dictate your behaviour. But when I when I was finished in the UK and um, we came back to Ireland and um, had some babies and things like that, um, I brought back a lot of my interest in that and obviously did lots more studies. So unfortunately then, um, a number of years later, I went into a very deep, depressed and anxious state. So I'm talking about... On a scale of one to ten, my anxiety was at an eight or nine all day until it came to nearly bedtime because it was safe and it would calm down. So that fight or flight feeling, I had it all day, every day. And where were you at in life? I mean, what age were your kids yeah, and that? The boys were kind of, um, would say the eldest was eight, nine. So I, I mean, I often thought back and thought, was it was it um, postnatal depression? And it certainly wasn't anything like that. I mean, I know exactly what it was. I know now. I didn't know at the time. But what really upset me was that I never considered that I would have had traumatic experiences that could have, you know, triggered something like that. But it was debilitating. I literally wasn't functioning. And uh, I've got a wonderful GP, went to my GP eventually after, you know, a lot of encouraging from my husband. Nobody else knew because I was too ashamed to actually admit that there was something wrong or that I wasn't OK. Yeah, because we feel like it's saying oh, yeah. I'm not coping over here and that there's Absolutely. shame in that. And 100%. It's crazy when life is so busy and there's so many demands on us and there's so many unmet needs from our past that we haven't had a chance to look at. It, it makes sense when you view it in that way. But I, this we probably talk about mental health more now yes. than we did even then. 100%. But you made your way to your GP. Yeah, I did, but with huge resistance. Um, and I really want to reiterate that because I think people still do that, that, you know, that whole thing. Of, and, and also, I would always have, you know, shown the world a very confident, very, you know, OK person has it all together, you know, practical, resilient, strong, which I still am. And I still was then. But this was going on and I was really, yeah, I was, I was deep shame about it because it was almost like, you know, that means I'm weak. So my beautiful GP, we had a conversation and she basically worked, said to me, what did I want to do? And I said, you can cut off my right arm. I don't care what you do. I just want to get rid of this feeling. So we decided on um, antidepressants and counselling. The antidepressants actually made me worse. So I came off those straight away and the counselling. And here's the thing, because we're, we're going to the psychotherapy or how, how that actually came into my life. It didn't come into my life on, only a couple of years ago. But with the counselling, I actually went for the wrong kind of counselling. So it didn't work at all. I didn't understand that, that there were different types of counselling. So what I was getting was somebody just sitting with me, but not. I, I needed answers. I needed conversation. I needed, even if it was good questions for me to work it out myself. So that didn't work. So 
basically with the anxiety, I ended up working it out myself. And that's where um, all of my work really started to expand. And that's why I went into this area of work. So coming through it, I worked out step by step, very slowly, different ways that I could manage my thought processes and my emotions to help me to be completely free of that anxiety, which I am. And I know it'll never come back, which is incredible to know that. Having said that, and I need to put this caveat in, that does not mean that I don't have the ability to feel anxiety. Of course I do. It's really important that we have that ability. However, I was, the anxiety was created because I had started a business and it was a, a natural skincare product, which was amazing. And the creation of it was so easy for me, easy to do. It was all beautiful. I was at home pottering and working with all the different people, you know, in terms of, you know, product and and getting the product together and the ingredients and all the rest of it. But when it came for me to step out and sell that product, that was when the anxiety started to come up. And where it related back to was the reason why I had that high anxiety was the fear of being rejected or the fear of it not working or the fear of failure. And that would have been a very big thing for me because it would relate it back to my academic um, mishaps. Um, my leaving cert was abysmal and um, I had huge shame around that. And I had a very close, very, very close um, relationship with my dad. And his narrative in life always was, you know, be driven, be focused, achieve, whatever. And I was addicted to his approval. So I would be driven and focused and achieve and do all of those things. And we got on really well. And the more I did well, the more I got approval. And basically that became a subconscious pattern for me. But when I failed academically, the shame was just so intense. But of course, I did what most people do, just push it down, pretend it wasn't there. And then in nursing, I failed my surgery in my nursing, uh, which was actually my good subject. And there was huge shame there because I didn't graduate with my fabulous friends that we're all still friendly, 40 whatever years later. Um, so that was devastating for me as well. But again, you know, didn't pretend there was anything wrong, push that down. So what I was doing there was I was suppressing shame and suppressing sadness and suppressing all of those feelings and emotions around that and just getting on with life until there was a point where with this business and it was, I mean, for other people, it might be something completely different. But for me, when I went to step out in the business, it was it was that thing of will this go belly up? Will something go wrong? Am I going to experience this shame again? Uh, and that was where the anxiety was coming from. Now, all of this was happening subconsciously, obviously. So are you saying that self-doubt in somebody is always rooted in something from the past? It's, um, when we're born, we're not born with self-doubt. None of us are. So we do pick it up along the way. And it can be many things that something either happened or we heard something. Or it could be even that you're in a household where, or, you know, experiences as a child where, you know, you don't directly feel or somebody's not directly saying something to you about you did something wrong or whatever, but there might be saying it to somebody else and you're projecting on that and that and, and that you might subconsciously decide, well, if it's if, if they're saying it for that person, maybe it's the same for me. So we can actually pick it up that way. So like I would say about my past experience, of course, we all have trauma or traumatic experiences or whatever. Um, I'm not I, I would say that my childhood was actually quite good. Um there were never any major things. So if there weren't, I still had set up those subconscious patterns to get to that intense or intensity that they were going to come back or the balls that I was pushing under the water were eventually going to pop up. And I think that's a happened. really important point for yeah. people to hear because often we think, sure, I didn't have trauma. My yeah. parents loved me. We never wanted for anything. Yeah. And I have access to all types of things. Yeah. But 
something like your dad yeah. placing a lot in academic performance mm. as still goes on now. I mean, we mm. still celebrate the people who get all A's in the in the leaving cert or yeah. whatever it's yeah. called now. I think they're called H something or yeah. But we do celebrate that and we do yeah. talk about that no matter how much you know, just before the break there, we were talking about neurodiversity and, and supports there. So we have more awareness around that. And yet we still celebrate academic performance a lot of the ways. But my point is, we can make sense of something logically in our head, but it doesn't mean it hasn't knocked our self-confidence a little bit and might show up later in life. Absolutely. And and also just on the point that you said there a moment ago, clear about, you know, uh, people not having, you know, traumatic uh, backgrounds or traumatic experiences growing up. I have often found over the years with the people that I've worked with and clients that uh, it's often the people that, that have a very loving family that that actually can have... Um, a, um, a, a knock-on effect when people leave the home. Um, so often it is, you know, it, it doesn't matter what the background is, it's really how we perceive it um, personally and we all do that subconsciously. So we're perceiving every moment of every day what this means to me, um, whatever the situation is, whether that's a very loving background or whether it is, you know, a difficult background or whatever. It's really our perception of what that is. So we're creating these models of our world and that's what will impact how we feel. So look, even though you had that issue with your leaving cert yeah. and your nursing exams, yeah. you went on to become a qualified psychotherapist. <laughs> so you pulled it out of the bag, well, Maura. Well, I got through the nursing and I got through the midwifery um, and I then um, did all of these other, as I say, the more the, the kind of uh, holistic and, and kind of neurolinguistic kind of kind of work. Now, I, I believe that that was probably my best trainings. So it was with a lot of the personal development stuff. That's where I started working with clients once I'd overcome my own anxiety that I could help other people. So it was with that, those one-to-ones that, and then, you know, I obviously run events now and train people to do what I do. And there's lots of other things going on. However, about four or five years ago, a couple of years before COVID, I decided that I wanted to understand the world of um, psychotherapy training and also to learn how to research and to understand research. So that was why I decided to go back and study. So I did a master's in psychotherapy. So I've never, I don't formally um, work as a psychotherapist. I don't see one-to-one clients anymore anyway, but um, and I don't formally work as a psychotherapist, but I wanted to understand the research that was that was really what what the the whole idea was from from that perspective so so yeah i suppose also from a, from an academic award perspective i did get there and i would say to anybody listening to this it's certainly very different to how you get through your leaving cert um and it was i won't say it was it was stressful but it's much easier to get your your marks. Your passion. One, yeah. Yes. Well, that's the other side of it too. Yeah. You know, uh, I wanted to really research around emotion and um, and yeah, I was driven by that, I suppose, really. Yeah. So can I ask you about your experience and I assume then it's yeah. the same for, for others. Once you had that awareness of this pattern you had of yeah. not being good enough or not being able to achieve and that that was holding you back. Yeah. Once you shone a light on that and unpacked it a little bit, does that dissolve its power? Okay, so there's a number of ways that we can dissolve the power of something. And anybody listening, um, what I say to them if they're kind of thinking, well, I, you know, I, that, you know, I don't have patterns. By the way, we all have patterns. Okay, so we're all running these behavioural patterns. So it's things like if if you think of something that you'd like to do, but you kind of go, oh no, I won't. And some people say that's procrastination. Usually, if you the best way to to 
to work it out is to think of the thing that you'd like to do. Imagine you're in your body and you're about to do it and then kind of feel into your body and most likely you'll feel something somewhere. And usually it is fear and we might feel it in our chest area or our solar plexus or in our tummy. Uh, usually it's somewhere in the trunk. And that's just giving you an indication that your subconscious mind has just triggered your endocrine system and your nervous system to do a little bit of fight or flight or a little bit of cortisol has been secreted so there's a bit of the stress hormone and the reason why it's doing that is because it banks all your memories and it banks all of the how you felt with those memories so its primary function is to protect you so the minute you're about to step out and do something it's going to fire off the uh, endocrine system and your nervous system and you're going to physically feel something in your body that's going to stop you from doing it now here's the thing we we hallucinate those things all the time. So we only have to think about it and we can feel it, uh, which is really, really cool because once we feel it, then we can investigate it. We can, that's only if people want to. And I always say that, you know, people say to me, um, you know, about working with people and would you not work on that person? I would say, I only work on people that invite me to work with them. So we need to be kind of really mindful of that. But everybody, everybody, can, everybody has patterns and um, everybody's patterns can be worked on. So the first thing is the acknowledgement that it's there. The second thing is if we unpack it a little bit to make to understand it, because if the subconscious and the conscious mind understands and there's wisdom gained from it, the subconscious kind of goes, oh, that's cool. Now I understand or we understand. So maybe she won't go do that again. So that might be enough to actually um, to soften the pattern or to, um, to you know, as I say, to, to recombobulate it. Um, or the other thing is, which um, would be very much around the QTT work that I do, which is there are specific techniques that we can do with people that have those kind of patterns and they might be holding a lot of that that physically in their body where we can actually bring them through a beautiful, um, it's a night close process and it's called quantum release. And well, there are many other things, but that's one of them um, where literally if somebody has an experience with a memory, let's say it was something that, you know, maybe been bullied at school or it might be, you know, they felt guilty about something that we actually can release the um, the feeling and the emotion out of that memory. And it can be done very gently in a couple of minutes without going into the memory. And I really reiterate that because I know that through my learning in psychotherapy, etc., that, you know, talk therapy, which I think is very good. And I absolutely would say to people, you know, consider it. It's very important if you need to talk. And um, but always be very mindful that there's no need to go back into past traumatic memories. There's absolutely no need to, you know, put yourself back in that situation and to feel all those feelings. Why would you do that when we can release them without doing that? Yeah, just to be focusing on the emotion. Absolutely. And I always feel when we're talking about these sort of processes, we kind of say, you know, somebody had fear, but they tried a particular form of therapy and then they went on to do amazing things. Whereas really, you're aiming to get to a point where you feel content in your own body. You don't have to become a CEO or a multi-billionaire or change the world. 100%. And it's interesting you say that because I, like, I would have worked with people over the years, like thousands of people at this stage. And um, when some people would have come and, and they're having the conversation and we find a lot of old baggage that they're holding on to and then they're physically feeling it in their body and they're saying, this is really holding me back. So we do the work, we do the quantum release and then they go, oh my God, I feel so light now. And then they get almost like what, 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 like, do I have to go out now? And I would say, hold on a second. Nobody knows you're here. I'm not going to tell anybody you're here. You're feeling this beautiful feeling. Why don't you just go and enjoy it? And don't tell anybody what you've experienced. Just be free. Just enjoy your freedom. And then maybe in a couple of weeks when you 
have let everything settle down and you might decide that you want to go and save the world or, you know, step out and start a business or whatever it is that you want to do, then absolutely go for it. Um, but you know, just just settle for now and just relax now. And that would be also in, in relationships with people that, you know, might come because they've had a lot of hurt or whatever around relationships and then they kind of feel, oh, do I need to step out now and look for another? I'd say absolutely not. Just enjoy yourself. Just enjoy relating to yourself first. Enjoy the freedom of not being attached to those old memories or those old, or, you know, letting go of the feelings that you're having that were associated to other people. Um, because as long as we're holding those feelings, those people are holding our power. And once we let go of the feelings, then we're free. I heard a really interesting podcast interview with the singer Paloma Faith recently, and she was talking about postnatal depression. But she said that she only knew, looking back, mm. how she had felt. Yeah. And she said that's an interesting thing about her experience of depression she wasn't even aware of it while she was in it. It was only when she looked back, she thought, God, I really could have done with greater support, perhaps medication. I should have reached out. But when you're in it, absolutely, it's really hard to observe it. And I felt really heartbroken for her because, you know, her marriage has since broken down and, yeah. you know, she wonders what way would things have been mm. if she had got the right supports. Can that mm. be the way for people that absolutely. they can't see the wood for the trees? Absolutely. And, you know, I think that's why it is so amazing that we're all talking about this more now. Um, I I would probably have met more women that have you know in in perimenopause and menopause. Um, that it's almost like being the frog in the in the pot of of water, and as it's heating up, you're not even aware of what's going on. And I'd even say that through my own journey through through perimenopause and menopause. Um, I was saying, oh God, I got I I flew through it, and then. It was actually through Catherine, our lovely um, mutual friend Catherine. At I spoke at one of her one of her menopause summits, and I was listening to all the speakers. And I was going, "Oh my God, I had a bit of that, and I had a bit of that." I wasn't aware, you know, I wasn't even aware of things like brain fog or maybe feeling a bit low on certain days or whatever. Um, so I agree with you. Yeah, I think that a lot of people um, are not aware that of maybe feeling that kind of a, a flat feeling or low feeling because they're kind of considering that's my norm, but it doesn't have to be our norm. Absolutely, it doesn't have to be our norm. So what's your advice to people? Do we need to make space in our life for self-inquiry to really check in with how we are and then that might lead us to find the supports we need? I think it's it's very individual and I always say I would never tell anybody to 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 do anything. And, you know, as I say, <laughs> I start a lot of my lives with why listen to me and say, well, you don't have to listen to me at all. All I'm saying is that from my experience of 30 years of, of, of doing this, um, there are ways out and there are ways where we can all feel an awful lot better. Um, but to answer your question, I would say that if somebody feels that they would like to feel better on a more regular basis or to get to the root of something, you, like I would feel that we owe to ourselves to do that. So that might be five minutes a day for somebody just to, you know, even start with, you know, something as simple as breath work or something as simple as a five minute meditation or something like that. That is absolutely fine. And that 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 will really be helpful for me. I suppose my hunger for knowledge was the reason why I and my hunger for knowledge of how the brain works, the mind works and how that impacts how we feel, because how you feel which, by the way, we all feel every moment of every day. And some people get really uncomfortable when we start talking about emotions. Because usually when we say emotion, people think, oh, that's sadness or anger. But it's not. It's Emotion is joy, bliss, um, unconditional love. It's all of those wonderful things, as well as anger, sadness, overwhelm and guilt and fear and all of those other things too. And we need them all. And they're all very, very important. Um, so 
all of us are feeling something every moment of every day. It might be that you're feeling bland or that you're feeling a bit meh. You know, it mightn't be really obvious to us, but every feeling we feel will dictate our behaviour. So in other words, every action that we take will be dictated by how we feel. So that's why it's so important that we just like do that, that maybe, you know, your own personal inquiry of, well, how am I feeling at the moment? And how is that impacting maybe something that I'm doing or something that I'm not doing? So it might be, you know, having the extra square chocolate, having the extra glass of wine, or it might be not doing something um, or it might be not starting that business or it might be not making an effort in a relationship or you know, it could be absolutely anything, but it is always driven by our our emotions um, and our emotions obviously, you know, will be related to our thoughts and what we're thinking at any at any given time. Where can people find you? People can find me on my website, moiragiri.com. And what I would say to people is if they want to get a kind of an idea of how actually how easy it is to get started. I On, on my website, there's a button. I think it's in a lot of places that says start here. And I've got a, a seven day positivity project, which is seven videos, a video a day for seven days, teaching people how to do very simple things that make an incredible difference. And the the feedback we've had from it and I actually would put the guarantee from the feedback is that if people actually implement what I'm teaching you on those seven days, I guarantee that people will feel better. And that's and I, I can actually put my hand up and say 100% guarantee if you do the little bit of work, you have to feel better because basically a lot of the techniques are scientifically proven um, to work. So give it a go. <laughs> Maura Gary, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aidan McKelvey and to Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.